Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I almost forgot my little tagline there. Um, today's episode is another really special one. We're going to be talking about self-deception, and I have with me Dr. Eric Funkhauser, and his book is fantastic. Uh, I wish that we had like eight hours to cover everything. I don't think we're going to be able to do that, but it's, it's really awesome. It's really exciting uh, to talk about and terrifying to talk about as well. The whole time I kept, uh, as I'm reading his book, I'm thinking, you know, am I self-deceived and where am I self-deceived? How do I? So uh, I'll be asking him about that as well. Before we jump into the conversation, though, I want to thank everyone uh, on Patreon who has uh, been supporting me, all my patrons. You guys are awesome. A lot of you have been joining recently, and uh, I, I want to give you more incentive to, to join my Patreon, uh, not just for, for supporting the podcast because you like it, because you've enjoyed it. If you do, please do that. Uh, but also, we're doing book giveaways now. And so I've been asking the publishers to send me extra copies of my guests' books in order to share the share the wealth here. So once a month or twice a month, I'll be doing book giveaways. And all you got to do is become a Patreon um, supporter, a patron for at least $3 a month, and you can be in that drawing. So please do that. Another way to support it is to go to YouTube and subscribe, leave me a comment. A lot of times the guests will come back and check the comment section and they see all the crazy stuff you guys write, but they also will answer questions. Not all of them, but some of them do. So if you want to ask your question to my guest, feel free to do so in the YouTube comments. And then uh, above and beyond, if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment, that would be huge. Helps all the analytics and all that good stuff. Boom. Okay. So without further ado, let's bring Dr. Funkhauser in. Eric, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, man. Hi. Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. This book is awesome. And in the introduction or in the acknowledgments, you said you'd been thinking about this for, for 20 or so years, this idea of self-deception. How do you even begin this journey into the you know philosophy of self-deception? Okay. Yeah. Um, started in, I guess, graduate school. I was a grad student at Syracuse University in philosophy. And, you know, we have to be exposed to these, um, these questions, these problems. And I had a, a really good professor there, Professor Tamar Gendler, who was doing some work on belief and rationality, uh, self-deception, but other things as well, like weakness of will that are kind of related, similar. And, um, she taught a great seminar on rationality where self-deception was one of the focuses. One of the, uh, was a focus. Um, and I don't know, it just, uh, it, I was drawn in to it from that class. You know, we have to be exposed to things, I think, to, to be interested in them, but it's, it has a lot of, uh, just natural interest. I think the topic of self-deception because, uh, it gets at some of the like philosophical ideals of reason and reflection. So as I understand philosophy, that's really core to what philosophy is. You reflect and then you reason. Yeah. And uh, with self-deception, we have problems in both of those areas. We're not being properly reflective or at least don't have self-knowledge. It doesn't seem um, of our biases and maybe of a divided mind, you know, uh, believing one thing, but kind of believing another also. Um yeah, and it's a perversion of rationality. 
Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, just, and just generally speaking, like, oh man, do we have an obligation to believe what's true? Is there something wrong about uh, hiding from reality? All that kind of stuff just appealed to me. So when I saw it in the seminar, the class, and read all this literature, I just got really into it. And I've been into yeah. it ever since, I guess. Did, um, did you do your dissertational work on this? No. <laughs> My dissertation was on uh, problems of mental causation. Uh, oh, determination worries in particular. So I did uh, a dissertation on the metaphysics of mental causation. That sounds awesome. We got to talk about that sometime. You got to send me that <laughs> one. Yeah, I love mental causation type stuff. Um, so, so that's it's um, what's really fascinating about self deception is that initially, for someone to think about that, they would think, well, uh, we're going to be talking with a psychologist. Um, theologians uh, care about this a little bit. A lot of my listeners, because of Romans one, we're going to talk about that later. Um, but it's interesting that, that a philosopher would take this up and want to get clear on it. Uh, and so I was interested in that. But as I started reading, exactly what you just said uh, just popped up. Uh, you say that this, uh, self-deception roughly, it's, it's failing to believe what the evidence indicates uh, you should believe, perhaps even believing contrary to it because you're motivated to make uh, you're, you're motivated or make an effort to do so. And so I thought that was really interesting. But then you go on to give this a pretty pretty great definition of philosophy and you show how self-deception actually is er- eroding the, f- the foundations of philosophy or, or the project of philosophy. And you said, uh, the philosophical enterprise at its core involves reflecting on our beliefs, wants, and values, and then rationally scrutinizing and adjusting what we find. It is the love of wisdom. And I thought that was awesome because so many times I hear it's the love of wisdom and the, pe- the people who study ancient philosophy want to go back to that. But you gave like a modern gloss on that and then you sh- you said self deception eats at that it destroys reason and, and uh, your rationality. So I thought you know that's fantastic that it does fit within philosophy. I, I wonder is it its own sub discipline or does it rightly fit in epistemology or you know action theory or, or free will or something? Right. Um, I wouldn't say it's its own self discipline, but it certainly overlaps and uh, puts you know, step, step, puts a toe in each of these different areas. It philosophy of mind, epistemology, um, ethics. Uh, yeah. So like philosophy of mind, like what is the, you have all these questions about what is the structure of the mind such that it allows for self-deception? What are the motives? What are the belief states, uh, of the self-deceived epistemology? Um, cause it has to do with like a distorted kind of right. uh, belief formation, um, and then ethics, you know, is it, um, is there something unethical about hiding from reality and maybe even believing a fiction that you yourself have participated in constructing? Now, I also want to see something where you said, like, uh, you, you pointed out how, how I see it as being core to philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, self-deception is really uh, core to philosophy because we have this ideal of reflection and reason and, I want to say that it's kind of, you, you might think it's core to just being a human being yeah. also. So you have the ancient wisdom that says you should, um, uh, the maxim, you should know yourself, self-knowledge. And self-deception, many people think, is a failure of self-knowledge. It's a, So it's not just like a problem for philosophers. It's supposed to be a problem for people in you know, everyday life. And it's, maybe we'll talk about this later. A lot of the examples I give are just like really common kinds of examples of self-deception. Yeah. Yeah. You know, famous examples about, oh, I'm, someone's deceived about the fidelity of their wife or, or um, uh, their health. And um, some of these are pretty high stakes 
<laughs> situation. So it's not just supposed to be like theoretical. It's supposed to be a really practical yeah. question for um, non-philosophers as well. That's a great point. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought that up. Um, I, I meant to mention that as well. Uh, <clears throat> you talked about ex- exactly what you said, but you said um, it's it's a, the language uses, it might be a real threat to leading a good human life as well uh, because of this failure of reflection and, and rationality. I think that's what's so fascinating about good philosophy is that it is about life. And some of the modern criticism of like analytic philosophy is that, you know, it's become, it hasn't become about the love of wisdom and it's so technical. And I think some of that's true, but you're an analytic philosopher and you're, you're talking about what the good life is and how to, well, it's not as much a how to book, but it's about getting clear on self-deception, which can, yeah, erode the good life uh, in the, in the, ancient sense of of yeah know thyself and and what uh what is the good life so uh, that's a great point i'm so glad that uh analytic philosophers can still talk about the good life i i love that yeah yeah i mean a lot i mean now admittedly a lot of the work on self-deception isn't so focused on uh sure. on like uh the ethics of it or connecting it to the, the all this stuff about self-knowledge but those applications yes. are at least in the background and we've had a lot of top-notch analytic philosophers tackle uh, the problem of self-deception. Mm-hmm. People like Donald Davidson, Robert Audi, um, uh, Al Mealy, uh, Tamar Gendler, to give like you know more recent examples of really high-level analytic philosophers who have taken on this this topic. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So um, there's this basic problem that that you you call it the basic problem, and, and maybe that's in the literature more generally as well. But it's uh, I see it as a how possible question, um, like in Kasim Kassam's type sense. Uh, how is it possible that we can deceive ourselves? And then uh, you say in answering this, we got to do three things. We need three key elements. We need uh, real deceptive measures taken against a real self with some success at the uh, deceptive enterprise. So like there's there's three components you got to hit on if you want to a- answer the how possible question. And then different ways that people answer it are going to uh, compromise one of those. They're going to uh, reduce one of those or, or or something. For those who don't understand why why it's even a how possible question, they just take it for granted that self-deception is possible. Can you can you motivate that for for the listeners? Good. Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, there is this how possible question. So th- this is one thing that's really weird about philosophy. A lot of what we do, like we we. Uh, we say, how is something possible? But we know it's like real. We know it's right. actual. But right. we know how it's even possible. You know, I, you know, Kant has, you know, examples yeah. uh, of this and it just a long, long history of this. Okay. So I think self-deception really occurs, but how could it possibly occur? Okay, good. Parker. So what's, what's the, the problem? Well, uh, uh, one way that people, um, uh, display the problem is they say, look, think of interpersonal deception. Think of when one person tries to trick or deceive another person. Normally the deceiver has information that the victim of the deception doesn't have. Okay. So I'm going to lie to you. I know the truth, but my goal is to spread a falsehood to you. So in the end, I have the truth. You have a falsehood. Okay. And I do tricks like I construct evidence. uh, I tell you lies and so on. And it succeeds because you don't know what I'm up to. You don't know that I'm lying to you. You don't know that I'm making up evidence. Okay. But in self-deception, the deceiver and the victim are supposed to be one and the same person. 
So when you have that identity, when the deceiver and the victim are one and the same, um, this generates what's known in the literature on self-deception as the static and dynamic uh, puzzles of Mm self-deception. These come from Al Mealy's work, um, those labels. So the static problem is like in interpersonal uh, deception, uh, I know I, the deceiver, know the truth. You, the victim, get a falsehood. But in self-deception, how could this be? How could I both know the truth and uh, believe the falsehood? How could I have such a state of mind? Yeah. Okay. Like I know that I'm unhealthy, but I believe that I'm healthy. How could I, how could that be? How could that both be, uh, those both be true? Okay. So that's the static pu- uh, puzzle, like describing the belief states of a self-deceived person at a given time. Mm-hmm. And that's what static means, you know, just at one time. And then dynamic is refers to a process that unfolds in time. So the di- dynamic puzzle is how can I trick myself? Okay. It's, it's easy to see how I could lie to you because you don't know what I'm up to, but how can I lie or manipulate or trick, deceive myself? Okay. I'm, I know I'm smart enough to know that like I'm lying, yeah. but how can I be dumb enough then at the same time to fall for the lie? And so, you know, philosophers make moves and psychologists too, to explain this, like, well, something's unconscious here, you know, you're you're not aware of it, or the mind is divided somehow, you know, so there are responses to this, but that's prima facie the the worry. I think it's good to just think of it on the interpersonal model. You've got interpersonal deception, um, uh, where where one party knows something the other doesn't. both about what they believe and what they're up to. Yeah. Those cause problems in the self-deception case. Okay. Um, do you think that uh, either the static or, or the dynamic problem, it, do you think one is more difficult than the other to, to answer? That's a really good question. I haven't really thought of it comparatively, which one's like uh, more, more difficult. Um you know, a lot of people just try to get rid of the static puzzle kind of like by legislation. They say yeah. like, well, the self-deceived, they really believe the falsehood. And that's yeah. kind of Neely's uh, position. He says, okay, the self-deceived, they end up believing. To be self-deceived, you're deceived. So you're mistaken. You reach the, the false belief. Um, and I don't know. I don't know which one's harder. Maybe the dynamic problem, like thinking, figuring out how we actually carry out right. this enterprise yeah, that's that intuitively that's what I was thinking. There's like this, yeah. Uh I think if if we're gonna use other if for for those uh that this would be helpful for, there's like a synchronic problem and a diachronic problem. And synchronic's like the static, like you you have this these two contradictory beliefs, uh, perhaps, or apparently contradictory beliefs. You're you're you believe A and you don't believe A, or you believe not A. And then there's like this diachronic, like how did you come to that position through time? And and that one that one's really interesting. They're both super interesting and tricky, but um, yeah, I, I guess I would think the the dynamic might be, I don't know, harder, but maybe maybe the psychologist yeah. needs to come in and say, here's some, some stats that we have, or here's, you know, yeah. Yeah, it might be good to just have a concrete example before us so people can see what we're, we're talking about. Yeah, like we can give tons of examples, but one example, famous example from the literature is W.K. Clifford in his essay, The Ethics of Belief, talks right. about uh, a ship owner. Uh, he owns an sh- immigrant ship, um, 
it sailed many times. Um, he has reason to think that the ship isn't in good condition and that it's not seaworthy, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to lose business. So he wants to let it sail and he doesn't want to pay for inspections and maybe like have to cancel a voyage. So he has a motive to believe that the ship is seaworthy, even though he has evidence and reason to believe that it's not. So um, he goes through some self-deceptive process, as Clifford describes it, and comes to believe, supposedly, that the ship is seaworthy once it's sailed. Yeah. um, So there, like in that example, it seems like the static problem isn't so difficult. Like, oh, the person, the the ship owner believes that it's seaworthy in the end. And maybe the more interesting question is how, how does he get himself to believe this? Like he knows the truth. How can he um, get himself to believe otherwise? And I think you're right, Parker, to say that maybe that's a little bit more of a psychological question. We're going to turn to psychology to like maybe just find out how the unconscious mind works or if if that's playing a large role here or just how biases work, whether or not they're uh, unconscious. Um, Neely does that for sure. He, his, um, his book, Self-Deception Unmasked, really um, brought psychological, empirical psychological research to the, um, the, fore, um, uh, to the forefront. Yeah. Um, someone, so um, Dana Nelkin, I think, also was like a leading proponent in, in taking the psychological research. Um, so in, in chapters three through five, uh, you give, uh, you lay out different answers to the, the how possible question, and you go over a deflationary account, a divided mind account, and a, a revisionary account. Can you just, just I know like this is, uh, writing a book is insane, and sometimes you put it in a footnote, and it's, you know, you learned it that day, and then it goes back out. So just, just broad view, like mm-hmm. what are these three uh, ways of answering the how possible question? Right. So you, yeah, that's correct. I, I have these three chapters in the book where I, I categorize three big kinds of responses, categories of responses that people could give to the how possible question, right? So the first one, is, as you mentioned, is the deflationary account. And so a deflationary account deflates the phenomenon, makes it to be not as big of a deal as you might think. Um, so in the case of self-deception, that means you don't have uh, all these like um, like um, complications, like a divided mind in the unconscious and so on. So the prime example of someone who has a deflationary account of self-deception is Al Mealy. Um, and he thinks that basically to be self-deceived is just to have a motivated bias. Uh, and you have evidence to support uh, the truth, but due to a, uh, a motive, um, your reasoning is biased and, and you believe accordingly, okay, for not good epistemic reasons. So some examples he gives is like, um, I think, he opens his book, if I remember correctly, with uh, this, this, this uh, datum that um, 94% of univer- university professors think that they're better than average. <laughs> yeah. I, think that, I think that's the, the stat. Um, that can't be right, right? Because, like, you know, you can't have 94% be better <laughs> than average. But you can see why professors would want to think that. Like, yeah, of course I'm better than my colleagues, you know, or <laughs> the average one, at least. Uh, well, you have an incentive. Okay. And the, so that to me, that's, that's, that's a paradigm example of hmm. self-deception. I think that's correct. Uh, uh, that, that he thinks that where um, it's just, it just reduces um, uh, self-deception to a motive uh, in contrast with there being an intention right. 
okay, or, or an effort to self-deceive. So <laughs> Mealy doesn't think that the self-deceived have to try to, to, to trick themselves. It's not an effort that they intend. It's more like something that just happens to them. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. So that's part of what it means to be a deflationary account. Okay. It's not so much something that the person does. Okay. It's and yet the, but the self-deception uh, isn't being deflated. The, the, the uh, knower or believer is still self-deceived, right? You- yes. They're still self-deceived, but there's not a lot of uh, complex or sophisticated um, uh, apparatus in the background. Like there's not yeah. a lot of stuff that the person is doing uh, to make themselves self-deceived. They're not intending it. They're not making an effort. Uh, okay. They don't have an unconscious. It's it's more of a, it's a simpler explanation. Yeah. You know, it's more passive. It's yeah. more, more passive than active, right? Yeah, but he still thinks it's something that a person could be responsible for. Like you can, okay. e- even if it, because maybe self-deception is due to epistemic negligence. And just oh, yeah. like in the law, we sometimes hold people responsible for, for right. negligence, not stuff that they intended to do, right. okay, but stuff nevertheless that they could have exerted some control over. Mm-hmm. People could be responsible for their self-deception, even if it's not something that they intend. Okay. okay. So let me segue then into the, that, the other chapter you mentioned where I talk about uh, intentionalist accounts of self-deception, and I group divided mind accounts in with them. Mm-hmm. So like a big debate, a big division in the literature on self-deception is between what are called the intentionalists and the motivationalists. Mm-hmm. So the intentionalists think that whenever there's self-deception, there's got to be an actual effort and intention uh, to self-deceive, as opposed to simply having a motive to believe uh, something like Mealy thinks. Um, paradigm examples here are people like Freud and more recently, Donald Davidson. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you, this means that the person is more involved in an agent. The intentionalism means that the person is more involved as an agent in bringing about their self-deception. It's yeah. like a project that they're taking on, something that they intend to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that makes it more like interpersonal deception. Cause like when I lie to you, it's something like I intend to do, like yeah. I'm going to try, I'm going to make an effort to lie to you. So Davidson thought that uh, when we self-deceive, we're doing something like that to ourselves. And this makes the dynamic problem more real. Like, cause, cause how could I intend to <laughs> trick myself, right. be so smart as to calculate how to trick myself but also simultaneously be so dumb to fall for that trick. I mean, I've got to know what I'm up to, don't I? Well, I don't. So that's why Davidson, I mean, that's not exactly why. Davidson thought that the mind was divided. Yeah. Okay. His real reason for thinking that the mind was divided is because it results in uh, contradictory beliefs. Yep. Okay. So that the self-deceive both believe, like in the case of the ship owner, um, that the ship is, not seaworthy and that it is seaworthy yeah believes both things at the same time and because of um uh rationality constraints davidson thought davidson thought a single unified mind couldn't have both of those contradictory beliefs at the same time 
Yeah. So there must be divisions or partitions is a word he uses uh, in the mind. They're somehow separated. So like yeah. the, the think of the mind as having different rooms. Yeah. And we gave lots of examples like this, like um, people are self-deceived a lot of times about their kids. Like maybe they have evidence that their son isn't that great of a student, but they want to believe that he is. So in one room of their mind, mm. they keep the truth maybe uh, that he's not such a great student, but in another room of their mind, they uh, they believe that he is. Yeah, that's how but, Davidson thinks self deception works. That you have yeah. divided minds with contradictory beliefs, and that you intend to have the uh, the one belief. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Well, I I love uh, everyone listening is going to laugh because I, I talk about Donald Davidson all the time. I love Davidson, uh, and it, what's interesting, and you brought this out, is that um, Davidson and maybe Dennett as well. They at least Davidson um, wants. Because, like you said, the rationality concerns. He wants you to. He wants to be able to say that there's rationality here. That you're not irrational believing two things. But like the the three criteria that you mentioned, uh, you, there's got to be real deception, which the deflationary um, theorists kind of deny. And then there's got to be a real self, and there's got to be real successful uh, success at the deceptive enterprise. But in Davidson, in wanting to affirm one, is denying two. This this real unified self, and he's he's splitting the self not because he's a jerk, but because he wants to give you rationality. That, yeah, that I, right? yeah, I like what you said. So just so the audience is clear as to what we're talking about here, self-deception is supposed to be deception, like you said, <laughs> like real deception. And it's supposed to be something that happens to a self, to like one thing. Right. And we've just pointed out two different views, Mealy's and Davidson, that sacrifice different parts of, uh, uh, of what self-deception um, uh, is constituted by. So mealy, a lot of people say like, well, that's not really deception. Right. You're not really lying to yourself or, or deceiving yourself or, you know, it's something more that just you're, you're a victim of like a, yeah. a bias. Um, uh, and then, yeah, the criticism, something like Davidson could be, uh, well, it's not a self anymore. It, it's, it's not one in the same thing now there are other criticisms that people can make of davidson also that like way this is just not an accurate view of how the mind is is structured okay um and i will say that davidson was influenced by freud uh in in developing this account of of self-deception yeah okay so then we have the uh the revisionist uh theories and i don't have as good of a grasp on this one but i'm i'm Assuming they're going to probably have a problem with with the third criteria, uh, with some success at the susceptive enter- enterprise. Maybe not. Maybe that's not the case. But and maybe it's a broader camp than the other two. Uh, can you help us out? Like, what what are the revisionist uh, account? What, yeah. what are they up to? Yeah, you're right in that it's not so obvious what this third category is. As like the the motivationalist and intentionalist camps are pretty well defined. Mm-hmm. For the revisionist account, yeah, they so they. With with deception, we normally think of it as a phenomenon involving belief. Yeah. Like I'm trying to get you to believe something. So one way to be a revisionist is to say that, well, self-deception doesn't really result in belief. Okay. So when I when I deceive you, I'm trying to manipulate your beliefs. But maybe when I'm deceiving myself, I'm not trying to acquire a belief, but I'm just trying to like indulge a fantasy. Yeah. Or a pretense a make-believe, an imagination, okay? So 
to give one example of what I describe as a revisionary account of self-deception, Tamar Gendler has this paper where she describes self-deception as pretense. Yeah. When, so her view is that when someone self-deceives, they're pretending that something is true. They don't actually believe it. They're just pretending. Yeah. So I describe that as a revisionary account because you're revising our normal understanding of deception. Normally we think of deception in terms of belief or knowledge states. And she says, no, it involves these, these other kinds of states like imagination and pretense. Okay. Which can mimic belief, you know, and, and play some of the roles that belief sometimes play. Sometimes, like she says, sometimes we act out a pretense. Sometimes we act out on what we imagine to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's what she thinks self-deceivers do. Um, they act out a fantasy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's okay. And so a, a, a revisionist, according to this criteria, is going to revise one of our uh, uh, common sense or just received notions of, of belief or deception or some, some uh, element that's at play. Right. And I focused on belief there, like, okay, you could revise belief. And I will say, I mean, Tamar Gandler isn't the only one. There are a whole bunch of theorists that make distinctions between things like what it is to believe something and what it is to accept something, or or, or what it is to believe something and what it is to think something is true. Like, oh, I believe, maybe I don't believe it, but I think it. Or maybe I don't believe it, but I accept it. So I'll just mention some names, Uh, uh, Robert Audi, uh, Kent Bach. Uh, Michael Brotman. Uh, these are theorists who make these kinds of uh, mm-hmm. distinctions and, and have their applications there to self-deception. Now, another folk psychological component to deception is like motive or intention, right. like right. we were talking about. And you could revise that as well. Like there's some people who give a biological account of, uh, of purposefulness. So you, some people might point to, to deception that occurs in the biological world. Yeah. Okay. So you have, uh, you know, camouflage, you have Batesian mimics that is like these butterflies that have the color patterns of a poisonous butterfly, but they're not right. poisonous. So they're lying, they're deceiving. Yeah. But in nature, there's not any, I mean, I put that in scare quotes because there's not any psychological intention of, uh, on the butterfly's part to lie to you. You know, it's not like they're like, hmm, I'm going to trick, you know, these birds into thinking I'm, yeah. I'm, um, I'm poisonous when I'm not. We describe it as deceptive, even though there's no psychological intention to Eric, deceive. Can I can I bring up a, another case? So I have I have uh, alligator snapping turtles, and uh, they are they're awesome. I love them. I have to have a permit here because they're endangered. And I have my permits. Everyone relax. But um, they sit at the bottom of the tank or the river, and they open their mouth, and they have a something called a vermiform. Uh, it's oh. a tongue lure, and it looks like a worm. And it fills with blood when fish come. And and again, I, I don't I don't think that's intentional. I think that's a biological response. It's got indicators that send blood to the thing. But it it is, it seems like a a stronger case of deception. Uh, and I don't mean to get it all into to animal thoughts and stuff. But you you worked on mental causation and stuff. So so maybe it's in your wheelhouse. It seems like. I don't know. Maybe uh, the, the turtle's not an agent. Maybe is that I wanted to get into uh, metacognition as well. Maybe that's at play here. There's not a second order belief or, or there's any maybe no beliefs in my turtle's head what, what do you make of that i mean i mean the, the turtle might have beliefs about some things but okay. I, I i find it implausible or i just would doubt that it has beliefs like about like what it's up to when it's um, okay. 
uh, it has this lure basically, or it's baiting, yeah. you know, right. it's a bait, right. right? Isn't that what you're talking yep. about? Basically. Exactly. Um, I d- would doubt that the, that, that it wouldn't know really what it's, what it's doing there. Um, anymore, you know, like we have other examples of this in even the plant world, like a Venus fly trap sure. and things sure. like that, where it's very clear that there's no like thought like, right. Oh, I'm going to get this fly. I'm going to trick it. Okay. So in the animal and plant world, we have all, I mean, deception is ubiquitous in the animal and plant world. Um, and there's this arms race, like other animals and plants have to learn to not be tricked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have to be on guard. My, my point though, about applying this to the, what we were talking about, about revisionary accounts of self-deception is uh, there's a sense in which you can have deception without even having psychological states like motives and um, intentions. Maybe this could hold for human beings as well, yeah. that there could be um, purpose of self-deception without underlying psychological states like motives or intentions, just like uh, we have purpose of deception. Like what your turtle is doing is purposive. Yeah. There's a purpose. Okay. You know, there's a reason why it does that, but I just doubt that the, that the turtle um, has any awareness or, okay. or, or, or like a psychological state that we'd say is, is its motive. Like, Oh, it wants to trick you. Right. Um, if you think that example is controversial, just go to a different example. Like I said, like the Venus flytrap, where it's really clear. Okay. It doesn't want to trick you. That is such a great counterpoint. Yeah, I'm so glad you went to the Venus flytrap because that's that's amazing. It really kind of deflates it. And so then even so then it would be an anthropomorphization to to put that on there. We're putting intentions on and it's I don't know if we're taking Dennett's intentional stance or something and saying like, yeah, but it's as if and we're talking about that way, but it's really not this this is really not what yeah. we're talking about when we talk to our, about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's really natural to talk about it, to say, like, it maybe wants things and, and, and believes things. But I think most people would take that to be uh, not literal. Okay. So in the case of the plant, at least. Right. Do you do you need, well, this is going to be controversial, I guess, but do you need propositional thought to self-deceive? I don't know. Like, um, so let's see, more generally, what do you need? Yeah. In order to self-deceive. Um, I want to connect this with something you just mentioned a little bit ago, metacognition, if I yeah. could direct it that way. Please. Um, yeah. I tend to think that self-deceivers uh, have a goal, not consciously typically, but they do have a, a goal that they're kind of pursuing where they want to acquire a, a certain belief for whatever reason. A lot of times it's because it's just psychologically comforting. Mm-hmm. Like it just feels good to believe that you're healthy. It feels good. It's comforting to believe that your um, kids are successful, that you're good at your job, uh, that your spouse loves you, you know, all sorts of things that you're really good looking, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So we have naturally as human beings, we have incentives um, uh, to believe these things. So I think the self-deceived typically have a goal. They, they want to believe something. It's not necessarily consciously before their mind though. So, to be a self-deceiver, I think you have to have metacognition, probably. Okay. So metacognition is thought about thought. Mm-hmm. OK, 
Okay, so other animals like turtles, um, dogs, I have my pug just sleeping out there. Um, they have, I think they have like uh, thoughts. Sure. I think my dog like believes that there are treats in this one drawer in my house and it wants to go for a walk and things like that. Okay. Okay. But no non-human animal. I don't know. Maybe there's some great ape exception, but by and large, no non-human animal can have thought about thought. Yeah. My, my, my dog can never step back and say, well, what should I believe or what should I want? Like, mm-hmm. or, you know, is this a life appropriate for a pug? You know, what am I doing? You know, but human beings, we do this all the time. Like, what are we yeah. doing with our lives? You know, we have thought about thought. So we call that metacognition. Okay. Um, you probably have to have that ability. I would think to be a self deceiver because you care about what your beliefs are. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about beliefs, I'd say. Yeah. I I think you're totally right. I I I actually I don't know how much metacognition is is talked about in the the literature uh in like philosophy of mind. I think it's really important for for like anthropology and and philosophy of mind type stuff. I I think metacognition is, is absolutely huge. I think that is one of the things that separate us from the animals. So I'm with you. I I think it's fantastic. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a huge topic in the philosophy of mind. Yeah. And you know, there are all sorts of applications like just having a language um, yeah. And using a language to require a higher order thought or yeah. metacognition. Um, because, and that's why I love Davidson yeah. so much because Davidson, that's like his point about language and, and cognition. And yeah. Yeah. So there are all these theories of communication that say, like, in order to um, communicate with a real language, not just animal calls, but like a real language like English or Spanish or something like that. Um, you have to have thoughts about like the minds of other people. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a connection between metacognition and uh, what's called mind reading. Hmm. Um, mind reading is when you attribute thoughts um, to other people. So you're yeah. thinking about other people's thoughts. Metacognition is when you're thinking about your own thoughts. Okay. So in both cases, you're conceptualizing thought. So because um, I think self-deception requires probably metacognition. I don't think that the very young, very young humans right. uh, can self-deceive. And I don't think that other animals can self-deceive. Yeah. I caught that in the book and it was awesome and terrifying because it, it you think about, you know, uh, when you're 25, whatever they say, uh, your, your frontal cortex is finally uh, developed enough and, and are fully developed. And it's like, yeah, we get all these awesome powers of abstract thought that come with this development of our brains and our minds. But also with that, we acquire this ability for self-deception, which is pretty terrifying, though I wonder, um, is there ever a case of, of good uh, self-deception? Do we ever want to deceive ourselves when we're you know, about to jump over a fence or compete in a sporting event or something? Is it ever, is it ever a good thing in, in the literature? Okay, good. That's an excellent question. Um, and I'm really interested in that. Uh, my, just to immediately answer it and then I'll say more. Yes, I think so. I think okay. so at least. Um, uh, just, but the, the more general question, I mean, I, I put this under a broader category is like, you know, I'm interested in strategic irrationality, like when it's beneficial mm-hmm. in general to have maybe a false belief or to be irrational even. Yeah. Um, so there's a psychological literature on this. For example, there's the psychological literature on what are called positive illusions. 
okay. where people tend to th- people tend to be biased towards the positive in that they um, things that are like self-enhancing that make you think better about yourself. And there's a debate about whether or not that's really good for you, like whether it's better to have an accurate representation of yourself or to have a slightly enhanced um, um, picture of, uh, of yourself. Um, if it's too enhanced people, other people will think of you as a narcissist and you might be off putting socially, Mm -hmm. but there could be benefits to, to thinking that you're better, like at a task or just in your intrinsic qualities, uh, than you in fact are, because there could be hedonic benefits. Like you just feel better or it can give you more motivation. Like, you know, maybe if I had an accurate representation of uh, like when I was in grad school, if I had an accurate assessment of how good of a philosopher I was, maybe I would have given up. Yeah. But, but, you know, <laughs> if I, if I uh, exaggerated a bit in my mind, maybe I was self-deceived, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just so good. And it, but it caused me, suppose it caused me to like work harder. It right. could be beneficial. Yeah. So, you know, there are examples in like athletics and uh, William James gives an example, like jumping over, let's say like a, a, a cliff or, you know, you can jump from one side to another. Um, maybe if you have kind of slightly, not completely delusional, but like overly optimistic beliefs, maybe you could perform better than you would otherwise. Yeah. But it's still got to be grounded in reality, at least somewhat like it's going to be very dangerous if your uh, beliefs are pretty strongly disconnected from reality. Yeah. yeah you get hit by a car or something. Yeah. Say that again, I'm sorry. Th- then you get hit by a car or something. You need, you need your beliefs to match reality uh, to a certain extent. Certainly. You don't want to yeah. think like, it's really, it's just not smart. If you think you're like really good at, at some um, job when you're really bad at it, it's like, right. you're just going to make a fool out of yourself. Then, you know, you're not going to be devoting your energies in an optimal way. It's better to, devote your energy to something that you're at least competent or, 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 or perfectly like good, good at, yeah. but I just, yeah, there's a lot of literature on, on, on benefits of self-deception. So some of them are hedonic, like just pleasure, like it makes you feel good. Okay. You know, maybe there's, there's harmless self-deception, just like there are white lies. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if my wife is about to leave for a dinner party with me and she asks how she looks and I think, uh, I like exaggerate a little bit. Like you look fantastic, but maybe yeah. I don't really think it's like fantastic, but I think that's a white lie. Like, um, um, it doesn't do any harm. And in fact, it does good because it makes her feel more comfortable right. and happier. Okay. And there's nothing like we're on our way out. There's nothing. She can't change her clothes now anyway. So why not? Um, maybe there's something like white lies and self-deception where it's just kind of like harmless. Like it makes us feel good. Um, Maybe we work harder because yeah. of it, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, in, uh, uh, like I mentioned offline, I wrestled in college and I would see this all the time with, especially dudes from Jersey. And if you're in the wrestling world, you know, people from New Jersey, the, the wrestlers from New Jersey got the same attitude. They all have the same guys, but they'll come in and they're like, I'm the baddest dude. I'm going to beat this guy. I'm like, bro, that guy's a national champion. You're you're not going to beat that guy. But they, they have it in their mind. I And you ask them why, dude, why? You think you work harder than him? I'm just going to beat him. And then like one of my friends was amazing and he wasn't, he shouldn't have won all the matches that he should have won. 
Uh, but he just had this belief and it motivated him. And it, it there's a weird psychology, psychological game in wrestling and someone's confident and it messes with you. And But it worked for him all the time. And so that's a, another thing that I love so much about this. Like we said earlier, it is uh, applicable. It is it's philosophy. It's deep philosophy and psychology. And yet it's it's uh, applicable to everyday life, even to something like like a wrestling match. I. I I, uh, I can't let you go here without talking about your own uh, desire to believe uh, camp. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought since we talked about Davidson and the intentionalist, maybe we could draw out your uh, your own view uh, in comparison to Davidson's uh, intentionalism, because it, it seems super close to me, but it's not as right. Not, not, yeah, it's 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 better, I think, actually. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Better than Davidson. That was pretty high praise there. Especially <laughs> well, you, you were standing on his shoulders, too. You had the, the oh, uh, benefit of coming yeah. after him. Yeah. Yeah. Like Newton. Um, shoulder <laughs> of giants. Um, yeah. So as I said earlier, I tend to think of self-deception as being, you know, purposive. It has yeah. a goal and it's directed at belief. So just for the audience, uh, you, you described it as a desire to believe account. So um Let's take a case of, uh, of self-deception. So a woman has evidence that her husband has been unfaithful. Okay. And she finds that psychologically like disturbing. Obviously she wants her husband to be um, faithful. Well, maybe not obvious, but she does. Um, So she deceives herself into believing that he is faithful. She, how does she do this? Well, she selectively attends to the evidence. She ignores her other things. She doesn't go down certain paths, doesn't check his cell phone. She's careful to avoid evidence. You know, this is mm-hmm. kind of familiar activity. Um, what's driving her deception? So probably the, the standard view is that she wants her husband to be faithful. So she desires that her husband be faithful. Now, I agree that she wants her husband to be faithful, but I don't think that's what that desire is what's really driving the deception. Mm-hmm. I think what drives the deception is her desire to believe that he's faithful. Okay. So she wants both things. She yeah. wants him to be faithful and she wants to believe that he's uh, faithful. So her self deception is a means towards the end of believing that he's faithful. It's not really a means towards the end of having him be faithful. Yeah. It's hiding from that reality. So just like deceive you, like in an interpersonal case, my goal is to put a belief in your head. I want you to believe a falsehood. Yeah. Likewise, when we self deceive, I think the goal is to put a belief in my own head. So it's driven by a desire to believe something. And I would also connect this to what's the the distinction between what's called positive and negative Mm self-deception. So normally people like um, are motivated to believe things that they want to be true. But sometimes people are motivated to believe things that they don't want to be true. So here's a weird case. What's what Mealy would call a twisted case of um, self-deception. I just call it negative self-deception. Suppose you have an insecure man who has all sorts of evidence that his wife is actually faithful. Okay. So it's the opposite of the case I just gave this, this man has evidence. His wife is totally faithful, but he's very insecure and he deceives himself into thinking that she's unfaithful. Okay. He wants her to be faithful, 
Okay. He desires that she's faithful, but he deceives himself into thinking and believing, let's say whatever, um, that she's unfaithful. Mm -hmm. So that's a negative case of self-deception. And it's like, well, what's driving it? Because he doesn't want her to be unfaithful. Well, maybe he wants to believe that she is, or he's biased in that direction because he just doesn't want to be played for a fool. Like maybe yeah, really so if I already believe it, yeah, if I already yeah, believe it, then I don't get fooled. faithful when she's not. Yeah. And it's just the risk of that, that vulnerability. I think this is actually psychologically plausible that sure. he doesn't want to be played for a fool. And that's why um, he engages in that self-deception. Yeah. Okay. So that's positive, negative. Um, how about uh, world-directed and, and mind-directed uh, motives? Uh, do, you, do you incorporate this into your own desire to believe uh, theory? Yeah, that's supposed to map on to the desire to believe um, uh, 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 theory. So, so if self-deception is is driven by a desire to believe something. Mm-hmm. That is, if it's true that when I deceive myself, I'm driven by a, a desire and, and a goal that I, I want to believe something. That means uh, the deception is really focused on, on my mind. Yeah. I want to bring about a change in my mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want my mind to be a certain way. I want to have a certain belief. In contrast with what you call a world-directed motive, um, self-deception is is driven by a desire that the world be a certain way. Um, so the woman whose husband is having an affair on her, uh, she wants the world to be such that he's not. Yeah. Okay. So so is her decep- her self-deception? Let's say we have two women. One is as experiencing world directed and the others experiencing belief directed how how might those two uh appear different in their actions i guess well my position uh, that's not how i'd actually put it my, my okay the why i make the distinction is i, I want to know which kind of motive is really driving deception okay why is this woman self-deceiving is it because she wants the world to be a certain way? Is it because she wants her husband to be faithful? I mean, of course she wants her husband to be faithful, but that's not what drives the deception. Uh, there are all sorts of women that who want their husbands to be faithful and they have evidence that they're not, but they don't self-deceive. Right. Okay? Because right. they're not driven by the goal to change their mind. Okay. okay? I think self-deceivers are driven by the desire to believe something. Okay. Okay. So their focus is on their own mental state. And that's why the self-deception is, in a sense, practically rational. So Davidson thinks this as well. He thinks, while self-deception is always theoretically irrational in the sense that we're believing contrary to the evidence, Mm -hmm. he thinks it's practically rational. It's like we have a goal, like we want to eliminate discomfort, and we choose a means towards that goal. Self-deception is a means towards the goal of psychological comfort. Yeah. Okay. And, and we can be really good at that. We can be very rational at, at doing that. Yeah. Now I'm not, I'm not fully endorsing that it's always practically um, rational. I think okay. in some cases, in fact, just it's the minority of cases. I think that self-deception is practically rational. I think normally okay. you're better off facing reality. Okay. So just like I think you're normally better off telling the truth, I think the white lies are the exception cases. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, normally you should I should tell my wife and other people the truth. Mm. Okay. White lies are exception. 
so too, I think I should face reality. I should tell myself the truth about the world. It's only in some exception cases, normally where the stakes aren't so high yeah, um, that it's okay for me to self-deceive. I th- this is an, this stakes being high point is, is something that a lot of theorists uh, talk about in the philosophy literature. Um, so many of us think that as the, the stakes get higher, as the issue becomes more important, you have more of an obligation to um, get at the truth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I've heard that in, in a different area. Maybe it was free will or maybe it was more responsibility. I've, I've heard that somewhere else as well. That's the, the stakes, the stakes question. Uh, yeah, super I mean, you should be more careful. The more important the matter is. Yeah. Oh, oh I've, 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 in epistemology, uh, someone was, I forgot, but um, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that comes up in epistemology, uh, how knowledge, well, they think knowledge varies with what the stakes are. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there was a new book in new books of new books in philosophy on that podcast. And was talking about about risk and uh, the stakes being changing the uh, justification or something like that it was crazy. So, um, OK, so I wanted to get at like how in how intentional I want to talk about uh, doxastic volunteerism. Uh, how much is that at play in this? Like, uh, do, do we have first and second order beliefs and we're able to put ourselves in a position to believe something or can we straight up just make ourselves change our belief? Okay, good. So doxastic volunteerism, doxastic. So the, everyone knows is has to do with belief. And voluntarism is the the idea that you can just voluntarily acquire, do something, in this case, believe something. So um, in the the philosophy literature, we call this willing belief. Can you just will Mm. or decide to believe something? And um, the the party line, the the normal position, the dominant position philosophy is that you can't just will to believe. Right. Right. Um, And and this is implicit in the self-deception literature. The self-deceived don't just like decide like, oh, I'm going to believe this and then do it. They almost always have to use some deceptive means. Mm -hmm. They have to hide from the evidence. They have to rationalize the evidence. Um, They have to selectively attend to the evidence and so on. Okay. So very famous example of, uh, of doxastic voluntarism. The, the, the question of it is Pascal's wager. Yeah. It's just going to bring you know, it up. like, mm-hmm. Oh, you should believe that God exists. It's practically rational. Not this, even if it's not theoretically rational for you to believe that God exists, it's practically rational. Right. Like your payoffs are better as a wager. Um, uh, Pascal argued um, if you believe, mm-hmm. okay. Cause if you, if you're right, Wow, you get eternal life. You get this huge yeah. reward. If you're wrong, so what? Like you, um, you uh, went to church on Sundays. Like, <laughs> big, like the, the there's an asymmetry here. The costs right. are so much smaller than the potential payoff, which is infinite. Right. Okay. Um, but Pascal said, connecting this to doxastic voluntarism. Now, he didn't think you could just like that. Right. Like, like I can just raise my arm like that voluntarily, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Pascal thought, you know, I couldn't just voluntarily believe this. So uh, I had to do things like I had to, so I have to associate with believers. Um, I have to immerse myself in certain practices and rituals. And that's how I can acquire the belief. Right. You know, there's, there, are the, there are means 
I have to choose. I can't just directly yeah. come to believe it. Um, and, you know, you could apply this also to the uh, issue of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might think, oh, if well, if doxiastic volunteerism were true, if you could just choose to believe things and believe them, then you're then you'd be responsible for what you believe. Right. Right. Because you just voluntarily did it. You chose to believe. Um, but what if belief isn't under direct voluntary control? Well, like Pascal said, it still can be under your control indirectly. You could mm-hmm. do things. Okay. That lead to you acquiring a belief and you could be responsible for having that end belief because you're responsible for those intermediary steps. Yeah. Okay. Or a self-deceived person, even if they don't directly will their, their self-deceptive belief, they could be responsible for it because maybe they're responsible for the means by which they acquired that belief. Maybe they're responsible for their epistemic negligence. Maybe they're responsible for the fact that they didn't have uh, an impartial search of the evidence, that they yeah. didn't consider all the evidence. Okay. That's something that someone could intentionally do. Um, maybe they can't um, just choose to believe something, but they can choose to ignore certain evidence or mm-hmm. attend to other evidence, not look um, for the truth. Yeah. So on. Okay. So, so your desire to believe, um, that, that theory, what you argue for, I believe is that, uh, it does give you a unified self still. So you don't have this divided mind, sorry, divided, you have a unified mind. Um, I, I, I think it, it, it checks off all the criteria, right? There actually is real deceptive measures going on. There is a real self and there's varying degrees of success in the deceptive enterprise. Is that, is that right? Uh, well, on my view, the the un- one thing we haven't really talked about in detail is the role of the unconscious. Okay. And it might be a bit misleading to say, on on my view, there's a, a unified self, because uh, I tend to think that the unconscious plays a very large role okay. in um, self-deception. So I don't know if that counts as a divided mind, the unconscious and the conscious, mm-hmm. but um there's a lot of stuff that we do, I think, purposively, like with a goal in mind, with a purpose. It's pretty sophisticated. That's not before our consciousness. That's done unconsciously. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, recent psychological literature on these powers of the unconscious. Hmm. Okay. Um, that the unconscious can do a lot of sophisticated uh, stuff. Yeah. I wrote a paper. I wrote a paper with David Barrett on this Um about uh, what we call robust unconscious self-deception. Um, I don't, I don't know that that shows the self to not be unified. There's right. just stuff that we're not aware of that we do. And, and some of it in, is used. Um, some of these powers are used in self-deception, I think. And that, that's part of the answer to the dynamic puzzle. Like right. how do we pull this off? Well, we're not aware of what we're up to. So, Yeah. And I, well, see, I like that because if you're not aware of what you're up to, you don't have this divided sense uh, in the sense that Jameson meant of, or maybe Freud, but he does have the unconscious there as well, that there's like two people acting against each other. It's like this unconscious that's part of you, but you're not aware of, uh, maybe it is. I don't know. That's a tricky one to think through. 
Yeah. So like if you look at a lot of these divided mind theorists from the past, they, they really made these little subsystems seem to be like little people. Right. Right. There are different little people in you. Like and for Freud, it's like, oh, you got the id with its drives and its beliefs. And you've got the ego with its as if there's like separate people. And you can kind of see that with uh, Davidson and um, another account that we haven't talked about, but I talk about my book is uh, Paris. David yeah. Paris has had a theory of self-deception where he's like, there's the main system and the subsystem. And a lot of these views really make these systems out to be like agents or people totally um, in their own right with their own beliefs and desires. And it's a little bit weird to think of like your m- mind is having little homunculi people in them, but also to go way back um I mentioned this briefly in, in the book, uh, Plato, you know, his tripartite soul. He did the same thing. He divided the yeah. soul up into three parts, just like Freud did. Uh, and he personified them. It's like, you got a little person, you got a lion, you got a multi-formed beast, and they each have their own, uh, desires and thoughts. So this goes, goes back at least to Plato that when you have a phenomenon that involves conflict, like self-deception or weakness of will, like you seem to believe one thing, but you also seem to believe the other. You seem to want one thing, you're tempted, but you want to you want the other also. So like you both want to eat the chocolate cake, but you also don't want to because you're on a diet. Yeah. Okay? So there's a long history in philosophy of accounting for any kind of conflict, whether or not it's motivational or doxastic, by dividing the person up into parts. Mm-hmm. The play is like, oh, you've got the multi-formed beast. That's where the appetites are. And it's like causing you to lust uh, Leontis lusts after these uh, dead boys because of his um, multi-form beast. But yeah. uh, his spirited part uh, knows that that's repugnant. Okay. So divisions explain are supposed to explain away conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And theorists do that for self-deception. Yeah. As well. And that's, that's wild. Oh, okay. So I wanted to, to, to finish off with just a, an analysis of, What's at play in, in, in Romans one, and so uh, in in Romans one, um, one eighteen says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And so um, in in Christian theology, that that comes up a lot that um, nature testifies to its creator, and uh, fallen people who who don't want to acknowledge God, like like us, like uh, human beings, they want to. Uh, suppress that truth and, and keep that down. And uh, this philosopher and theologian, Greg Bonson, wrote his dissertation under Dallas Willard um, on self-deception. And he parsed Romans 1 as uh, first and second order beliefs. He said, you know, there's this first order belief maybe that knowledge of God is getting in, but you have a second order belief that stops you from assenting to the first order belief. And I wanted to, to get your thoughts on that. Um what okay. do you, yeah, what do you make of that? What do you make of uh, first and second uh, order beliefs? Does that have any value in, in your theory? I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really tracking the first and second order. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just okay. not, not aware of how I see it. So second order belief, normally I think of as a belief about a belief. Yeah, right. Okay. First order belief is just a belief in the normal sense. And the second mm-hmm. order belief we think of, oh, that's a belief about a belief. Right. Um, I mean, how you just describe the view um, um, his view, it sounded very Davidson like, like, so, um, the, the, the man, the person 
has knowledge that God exists. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the claim? Based like yeah. the natural world said, the, 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 the person is aware that um, God exists based on the natural evidence, but for yeah. some reason, maybe the motive is pride or something. I don't know sure. yeah. what the Whatever claim is, but the motive is something like the, the pride of man. He doesn't want to believe that. Is that, yeah. is that yeah. the idea? Right. He's motivated to believe the, the opposite, that the evidence doesn't support that God exists. Yes. Do I have the view correctly? Yeah. So I wouldn't, I don't know. I mean, there might be a sense in which the one's a first order of belief and one's second order of belief, but I just describe those as beliefs and think of it on the Davidson position. Like, so you've, you've got evidence that supports something um, that you are motivated to not accept. You find it uncomfortable. So I, I mean, I'm not familiar with, with this literature, sure. but I imagine the idea is like, Man is full of pride, and so he's motivated to reject this. He doesn't want to think that God exists or something. And so uh, that causes him to form the opposite belief. Okay. Am I, am I understanding this correctly? Um, yeah. Now, in well, the actual biblical passage you, you, you quoted, yeah. though, the, the expression there was suppressing the truth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Um, you could suppress the truth in a few different ways. One way to suppress the truth is, um, well, it's one, one way is it's gotten in already and now you just want to bury it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, another way to suppress the truth is to not let it in, in the first place. Right. You know, that's what we call like willful ignorance. Yes. Where people are willfully, they make a point of not getting the facts. Yeah. Like a corporation might want to not might want to not know about the dangers of its products because then it can't have plausible deniability. Like maybe someone doesn't want the truth. I don't know about God's existence to come in because they want plausible deniability when they say, Hey, I didn't know that God exists. Right. Right. Um, I don't know, but yeah. um, Well, Eric, that makes it that that, um, brings up another interesting point, practical point about um, responsibility. If, if, you did have knowledge. So it seems to me like if the corporation has uh, files in their cabinet that shows that they were, they had engaged in wrongdoing and they shred those files, it seems like that would be worse than them not doing the research to get the files in the first place. Do you know anything about like how that works in, in law or whether one is more uh, blameworthy than the other? Um, I don't know. Well, I, I agree with you that probably shredding the documents is worse. Okay, but uh, willful ignorance is also bad, right? Right. And um, how 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 bad comparatively? I don't know, but you can be held legally accountable, right, for uh, willful ignorance. There is such a thing as willful ignorance, totally. as opposed to so willful means like this gets back to the issues of motives and intentions again, right? Uh, that that tell willful. Just look at the word means that the will is involved in some way, like you are responsible for your ignorance. You did something to make sure you, you um, maintained a, a state of ignorance. Yeah. So you bear some responsibility for your ignorance then. If it's so, willful. Is that in your mind, I guess, um, which, which bears more responsibility willful ignorance or um, active like su- suppression, active uh, self-deception? You mean, well, willful ignorance could be a, a kind of self-deception, but, um, but you okay. mean like by self-deception, like, no, you've really got 
you've got the information. Yes. And you're just actively rejecting it now. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I would say like at, willful ignorance, at least there's the chance that like your product is fine. It doesn't. Yeah. Right. Anything. Right. But, uh, in the case, you're, you're the, the other case so that you're describing a self-deceptive, like you found out like, no, it's not fine. And you're um, now being self-deceptive to, to not accept that and to believe otherwise. Yeah. Like, yeah. I imagine that. I think that's probably worse. Yeah. But to be okay. clear, willful ignorance is bad. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No one at home. We're not giving anyone license to yeah. be willfully ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, last last thing here, just to clarify between the the uh, desire to believe camp and the intentionalist camp, um, you you guys on the desire to believe camp don't have as strong of criteria. I think is that right? Like the the intentionalist is like very robust, very much like there has to be an intention where. Would you guys say um, not quite? You don't have to have this robust sense of intention for, in order for self-deception to happen? Okay, good. This is a good question to like end on. Um, so traditionally, there's the division between the motivationalists and the intentionalists. Right. Is self-deception dr- driven by a motive or a desire? Motivationalists say that. Or stronger claim, is it uh, driven by an intention? Like there's a motive also, but, but do the self-deceive actually intend their deception? Yeah. I prefer a little bit different way of framing the issue. Like how involved is the person is the agent in the Mm self-deception. So that's what I mean by a robustness. And I also use the term agential involvement. Yeah. How involved is the agent? Okay. So on my view of self-deception, self-deception is purposive. Mm -hmm. There's a purpose to it. There's a goal. It is goal pursuit. The self-deceived want to believe something and they take means towards that end. Okay. That probably means that there's some culpability for it. The intentionalists, I think, as I understand them, think that self-deception involves a little bit more uh, than just uh, purpose. Okay. Because there can be purposive behavior that's where there isn't an intention. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the examples we gave earlier, like about the animals, like there's a purpose to uh, the Venus flytrap's um, lures or your your um, turtle, okay, yeah. the bait it has. There's a purpose to it. It's purpose of behavior. But I don't think it's quite right to say that it's intentional, like they're intending this. Yeah. Now to make that. So in the human case, there's also like all sorts of activity that's purposive. That's, that's not intentional. Give other animal examples. Also like a spider, its movements are purposive, but I don't know that that's correct to say it's intentional. So intentional maybe involves like actually forming an intention. So you got the word intention there. uh, Whereas something that's purposive just doesn't necessarily involve an intention. Okay. Yeah. Um, all, all intentions are purposive, but not all, uh, purposive actions are, uh, intentional or intentions. I think that's correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Very good. This is awesome, man. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been fantastic. I, I appreciate you going in depth on this stuff. I know, uh, you know, you write a book and it's tricky to talk about. So I just appreciate so much that, that you're able to, to recall and go there with me. Oh, well, thanks. I really, I'm, I'm happy to be on your, your podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Yeah. So again, folks, the uh, the book is Self Deception by Eric Funkhauser, and it is a uh, another one in the series of New Problems of Philosophy. Uh, looking to have a couple more authors on in this series. I love this series from Rutledge. So uh, 
stay tuned and, and look for those new episodes. Um, actually, Eric, before I let you go here, where can people find you or, or find your work if they wanted to, to get more from you? Okay, good. So I do have a, just a website, a Google Sites uh, website. You know, I'm faculty here at the University of Arkansas, so I've got a profile here as well. And I have, um, you know, Phil People uh, okay. page. i got a Google Scholar page. So uh, there are ways to find me. But, yeah, I have a personal website. And then, uh, you know, you can also search for just the, the things I've written on uh, well, the books on Amazon and on the uh, Rutledge site. But uh, for articles and stuff on self-deception, go to Phil Papers or go to Google Scholar and you can find that stuff also. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.